I've been thinking a lot about my late friend, my late hero, the Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian. Reverend Vivian once told me himself about his work in Selma, Alabama. You see, Reverend Vivian was working for voting rights in Selma, and those were being held up by a man named Sheriff Jim Clark, who was a rabid racist, somebody who had brutalized the community for years. And every morning, Reverend Vivian would go to the courthouse steps. Some days, Sheriff Clark would meet him at the store. Some days, he would ignore him. And some days, he would beat Reverend Vivian. And every day, Reverend Vivian would ask for voters to be registered, and then he would pray for their reconciliation to one another as brothers. It also reminds me of other times that reconciliation happened around civil rights icons. Elwin Wilson, who had beaten John Lewis in the head at a freedom ride, found him years later and apologized and asked for forgiveness. And John Lewis accepted it, and they were reconciled. Zernona Clayton spent years talking with Calvin Craig, the Ku Klux Klan leader of Georgia, until Calvin resigned as a Klansman and asked to be reconciled to Mrs. Clayton. These examples of reconciliation on the individual level are strong, but reconciliation isn't just an individual endeavor. It's an American one. You see, if we go all the way back to the beginning, if we go back to the founding of the country, there was a big revolution. The king was thrown off. The, the revolutionary warriors had won. But there was one problem. There were these loyalists still hanging around, neighbors, friends, family members who had fought for the king who had fought for Britain, who wanted to stay in the colonies. What to do with them? And good old Alexander Hamilton, who we all know a lot more about because of the musical, defended the loyalists. In court, in writings, he said that the loyalists shouldn't be prosecuted or persecuted. They should be allowed back into the country for two main reasons. He said, in order to build this new country, we are too young and too unstable not to have them. And two, if we go persecuting them, it may lead to tyranny. It may lead to their rights being unprotected. And so Hamilton actually made sure that when the country was first built, reconciliation with the loyalists occurred. Both the new country and those old enemies both moved forward together. And those loyalists were reconciled over a 30 or 40 year period, scholars tell us, to the idea of the new country. Then, of course, there was another great war, the Civil War. And following the Civil War, the same question in a different form came forward. What should we do with the rebels, with the traitors, with those that tried to overthrow the Union? All of them, except for 14, were pardoned by President Andrew Johnson, and eventually those 14 were also fully pardoned. The idea was that with Reconstruction happening for those 12 years in the South, where the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were put in place by soldiers, that they would be reconciled back to the new vision of the country. But of course, as we know, it wasn't so. After those 12 years of Reconstruction passed, there was no reconciliation among many in the South to the new vision of the country. Jim Crow laws, segregation, lynchings, violence was perpetrated. They were not reconciled to that new vision. Unlike the Loyalists, those in the South still held on to the old vision of the country. 
Reconstruction failed and reconciliation had failed. Then, of course, almost 100 years later, a second reconstruction, as many scholars call the modern civil rights movement, occurred. A, an attempt to actually bring the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments to life. The uh, vision for a country that would be equal, a vision of a country that would include all Americans, especially black Americans. That reconstruction in many ways succeeded. Civil rights, voting rights, the falling of miscegenation marriage laws. In many ways, the country moved forward in a new vision. But as we can now see as we stand over 50 years later, reconciliation, though, in part happened with individuals, but did not, in fact, happen with the new vision of the country. We still have with us those that don't abide with the vision of a country that is free and fair for all. And so now, as we face calls, in many cases, for a third reconstruction, the question becomes, what's the role of reconciliation on the individual level and on the societal level? And so I turn to Dr. King, and I turn to Dr. King's Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. He wins the Peace Prize in 64. He gives a speech in early 65 in the midst of the American Civil Rights Movement. And he said, I accept this award with an abiding faith in America and on a, an audacious faith in mankind. An abiding faith in America and an audacious faith in mankind. Now, of course, many who have studied King know the famous quote that King said that the universe bends in the direction of justice. But the first part of that quote is the one to me that's more interesting, an abiding faith in America, an abiding faith in America that didn't want King, an abiding faith in America that was rejecting much of what he was working for. Why did he have an abiding faith in America in that moment? And to me, you have to go back a little over a year and a half to the I Have a Dream speech, not the second half of the speech, the famous part of the speech that started with I Have a Dream, the one that most of us can quote, but my favorite part, the first half of the speech. The first half of the speech, standing on those steps in front of the Lincoln Memorial, King said that when the country was founded, that every citizen and every heir of that citizenship was given a promissory note a promissory note inscribed in the Constitution, a promissory note inscribed in the Declaration of Independence that every citizen, present and future, had a promise of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and all of the benefits of being an American. And that when black Americans had come to cash in the promissory note of citizenship, the government had marked it insufficient funds. And King said that he didn't believe that the American government was bankrupt enough not to pay that promissory note. He believed in America. He had an abiding faith in those original promises. And so in this moment, as we think about a reconstruction of our country, as we think about a reconciliation of our country, there are three things that come to my mind. Two of them individual and one of them collective. First lesson, 
individual reconciliation should be offered without transaction. C.T. Vivian, Sir Nona Clayton, John Lewis, Dr. King, they all offered reconciliation if someone was willing to respond in kind. They were willing to offer it without transaction. They were willing to offer it without promise. They were practicing what Dr. King had called in that Nobel Peace Prize speech, an audacious belief in mankind, an act of faith in their fellow individuals. I believe that in this moment, we should be offering that. It is hard. Many of us have been downtrodden. Many of us have faced inequities. Many of us have faced violence. But that act is a moral one, and it's a one of individual faith, a faith in the other person, a faith in humanity. The second, which is communal, is actually something that is not from America. One of the other great moments of the 20th century when it comes to reconciliation was the moment following World War II and what was Germany going to do? The Nazis had been defeated, but the German government had to face up to its atrocities. Its atrocities against so many people. Its atrocities against the Jewish diaspora. And in that moment, there was a poll taken in Germany. And the poll asked three questions. Number one, how did folks who, who were not Jewish feel about Jewish individuals? Two, did they feel as if they had any individual responsibility for what had happened? And third, did they believe that the country had collective responsibility for what had happened? Shockingly, one-third of Germans admitted that they still were anti-Semitic in that moment after everything that had happened. Even more shockingly, two-thirds of Germans said they bore no individual responsibility for what had happened under Nazi Germany. But a majority of Germans believed that collectively they bore a responsibility to make things right. That they collectively as a country bore a responsibility to somehow pay for the sins that had been committed. This is a very important insight, I believe, in the moment that we are. In order for society to reconcile, we want to have everyone who has done something admit that they were wrong. We want them to repent on an individual basis. We want them to come forward, and we want them to tell of their own atrocities. But the society may not be in that place. But that does not have to hinder communal reconciliation. That majority of Germans who believe that the country and the society should reconcile allowed the German government to pay reparations to Israel, to pay reparations to Jews who had been affected, to return artworks, to change their own constitution. It allowed them the tools and the support of the majority to do all of the things they needed to do in order to reconcile and come back into the international community and also to do all that they could to reconcile for the atrocities they had committed. I believe that that lesson for America is so vital because we know that reconstruction or construction doesn't work without reconciliation. And that offers us a way for reconciliation without having every single person having to admit that they, in fact, are responsible, at least not at first. But finally, there is that great 
reconciliation that we all want, the spiritual reconciliation, the kind of reconciliation that we saw that John Lewis received from Elvin Wilson and that Zernona Clayton received from Calvin Craig, that reconciliation of someone who has done wrong, understanding that they have done wrong. And that reconciliation, I think, comes from a very interesting place. If you go through Scripture, Hebrew Bible and Christian Bible, and you look at the frequency of words, God is used several thousand times. Moses shows up about a thousand times. But more than the word love, more than the word sin, more than the word repent, more than the word judge, is the word righteous. Righteous, depending on the translation, shows up somewhere between 550 and 650 times, more than any other call for a human behavior. Righteous. And it got me to thinking, why is righteous and righteousness showing up so much? And it's because being righteous is the way in which we get closest to the divine, being right, being fully in the spirit. But righteousness has an antithesis, self-righteousness, self, uh, selfishness. You see, righteousness, if you take it in the context in which it's given in Scripture, is often talking about community. It's talking about giving to others. It's talking about being generous. It's talking about denying the self. It's talking about love thy neighbor. It's talking about all the ways in which we support one another. That is when we find righteousness. Self-righteousness is when we find the opposite. We concentrate on ourselves. And so this notion of reconciliation is the practice of righteousness. It is the practice of centering someone else above ourselves. And in this moment, denying self-righteousness and embodying righteousness that is exemplified through our care for others feels like where we need to go. It feels like the moment that we need to embrace. It feels like that act of faith, that audacious belief in the future of mankind that Dr. King talked about. And so in this moment, I believe that reconciliation is not only right for America, but I think that reconciliation is required. It's required in order to achieve a new country, a new vision of the way that we live. It is a spiritual call for us to embody faith. It is the way in which we find ourselves closer to the divine. And it reminds me of something else that C.T. Vivian once told me. You see, when he told me about Jim Clark and he told me about his prayers, of course, I had to ask. I said, Reverend Vivian, why did you do it? Why did you pray for this man who clearly hated you? Why did you continue to come forward and every day ask that you two be reconciled as brothers? Why would you do that? And he said, because I wasn't just working for my own liberation. I wasn't just working for liberation for folks who looked like me. I wasn't just working for liberation of the people who lived in Selma. He said, I was working for the liberation of white folks. I was working for the liberation of Jim Clark, I was working for the liberation of people who hadn't even been born because Jim Crow and segregation and racism were chains that enslaved us all. And I, C.T. Vivian, was working to try to help no one have to live under that system. 
The notion of reconciliation isn't just an expression of forgiveness. It's not just an expression of what has happened in the past. But as Reverend Vivian reminded us, it is an act of faith to try to liberate us all from a system that does not allow us to be fully human. I hope today that we will all take those lessons of C.T. Vivian and apply them on the individual basis and on a communal basis in our country.